Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone, welcome to LawPod. My name is Rachel Colleen, I'm a lecturer here in the School of Law and I'm very pleased to introduce today's episode on the role of activism in combating sexual and gender-based violence. This podcast is being recorded the morning before an event we're holding in the law school built around the theme of 16 Days of Activism. So 16 Days of Activism uh, begins on the 25th of November, which is International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and lasts until the 10th of December, which is Human Rights Day. And it's a time to galvanise action to end violence against women and girls around the world. And with me today are Dr. Ethna Dowd and Dr. Yasin Brunger. Hello. Hello. So by way of introduction, uh, Dr. Yasin Brunger joined the law school in July 2016 as a lecturer in human rights law. And her main research and teaching interests focus on international criminal courts, conflict-related sexual and gender-based violence, transitional justice, human rights and feminist perspectives on international law. And she's working on her book at the moment, which is based on research on the relationship between the International Criminal Court and the UN Security Council. She's also a member of the International Feminist Judgments Project, which brings together a group of feminist social legal scholars, and they've been writing alternative feminist judgments in a series of significant cases in international law. And then we also have Ethna Dowds here. So she also joined the law school in September 2016 as a lecturer, and her research intersects these areas of international criminal law, feminist legal theory, sexual offences, and children born of sexual conflict, uh, sexual violence and conflict. So her PhD looked at the role of consent in international criminal definitions of rape, and she is particularly interested in feminist strategies in international criminal law. And then we have me, I'm Rachel Colleen, and my research interests centre around the ways in which states and other actors respond to international crime, and the various factors and contexts which influence the invisibility or visibility of certain crimes and harms. So... We all have an interest in combating sexual violence and the use of international criminal law and we're here today to talk a little bit about what international criminal law is and how it's responded to sexual and gender-based violence and then the different ways in which different legal and civil society actors have tried to increase accountability for this kind of harm. So maybe just to begin then, Ethna, would you like to tell us a little bit about international criminal law and how it's historically responded to this type of harm? Yeah, uh, so although we are in the era of the International Criminal Court, the Yugoslav Tribunal and the Rwanda Tribunal and so on, but if we think back in terms of um, the World War and the development of the Nuremberg Tribunal and also the Tokyo Tribunal as well, there were instances of sexual violence very prevalent, especially within the um, Tokyo Tribunal, although they weren't actually looked at in the court. So you had instances of sexual violence and the phenomenon of the what is known as the comfort women, so where the military had... Um, institutions where they placed women and then they were at the disposal of the um, military individuals and in the court itself it was very much focused on 
other crimes in terms of killings, mutilations, torture and so on. And while sexual violence did come a little bit in terms of the transcripts, you can see it, it was categorised as inhumane treatment. So you don't have the label of sexual violence, rape and so on. And we really do have a narrative that really silenced violence against women. And it was very much a man's world in terms of um, that type of war. So as the time developed, there was a little bit of silence around international criminal law after Nuremberg and Tokyo. And they were in response to crimes perpetrated during World War Two. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, a little bit of silence in terms of um, there was a lot of kind of hope for what could be this international criminal response to situations of mass atrocity. And then um, as time went on, you then have the conflicts which occurred in the former Yugoslavia and also in Rwanda. So the genocide that occurred there in the 1990s. And then again, we have this renewed hope in terms of some sort of international criminal justice. And there were a lot of reports in terms of mass sexual violence perpetrated during those conflicts. And it was at that stage then that we see a real um, surfacing of crimes of sexual violence and individuals criticising the lack of um, legal framework that we had in terms of there being no actual legal instrument that defines, for example, the crime of rape. So I think there's been a historical silence in relation to it. And then as we see the more um, contemporary international criminal tribunals developing, there's frameworks which are slowly developing and responses um, that are a little bit more progressive, although there is a lot more work still to continue. Yes, and what's your sense of the effectiveness of international criminal law now? You know, we've heard about these developments. Do you think it has reached a place where it does offer uh, adequate accountability for sexual and gender-based violence? I think that's a really difficult question that uh, the, the challenge is to ask, ask, ask the question of who does international criminal law serve? And it's an important question because if it's about um, victims and victims' communities, then to a certain extent, the the answer to your question would be partly yes, partly no. Partly yes, because we do have, you know, jurisprudence, we do have case law um, that has addressed some forms of sexual and gender-based violence that Ethna pointed out, for instance, in the former Yugoslavia, in Rwanda, um, and Uh, and currently on the docket of the ICC. But I think what we need to do is take one step back from that and think about the no part to that question. And the no part is really around the inherent patriarchy of international law. So international law is something that is constructed and governed through this patriarchal lens, you know, and and that means that when we look at crimes of sexual and gender-based violence, that visibility and invisibility is shaped by the patriarchal lens to which it was created. So we have a, a current move to try and engage more with feminist thinking within international law, within women's activism within international law, and that is challenging those patriarchal narratives and that lens. But I still think we have a lot of work to do. So, um, so I'm hesitantly optimistic, but I. I also see um, that there is a number of issues that we have, for instance, in trying to get male victims of sexual and gender-based violence more recognised within the international sphere, so that it isn't just that sexual and gender-based violence is a women's issue, but it's also an issue affecting men, it's an issue that affects LGBTQI, and we, we aren't 
we don't quite have the terminology and the vocabulary in international law to reflect the full complexities of the crimes that we're talking about. So in that sense, uh, we, we still have a lot more work to be done. Yeah, I think that speaks to attention, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, there's the fact that, you know, there's this critical feminist scholarship and activism around the idea that we're not fully acknowledging the harms being perpetrated against male victims, that we're not capturing the complexity of issues like female perpetrators and female agency within the context of these types of crimes. But then you've also got this idea that we're not even reaching a threshold where we're fully acknowledging the harms perpetrated against women yet. So even mm-hmm. the first wave that was about you know acknowledging what happens to women and girls mm-hmm. has not managed to come to fruition. And at the same time, scholarship and activism is moving on and saying, well, actually, it's not just about that. You're also not fully acknowledging these things as well. Mm-hmm. So it's about trying to, for, for activists working in this sphere, you've got these two goals, haven't you? Like, mm-hmm. don't let the experiences of women and girls fall away, but equally, you have to acknowledge there's, there's all kinds of complex victim identities mm-hmm. that we're only even beginning to understand. Uh, so, you know, you talked about the move towards mm-hmm. feminist activism then within international criminal law. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the three of us have been researching a little bit. Maybe each of us could provide a bit of backdrop to the, the type of research that we've been doing and the type of activism that we're, we're mostly interested in. So for me, you know, my research focuses particularly on Cambodia and the response to the Khmer Rouge tribunal there. And this is a tribunal that it's faced challenges in that it can only really rely on the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals that Ethna mentioned and developments in international criminal law previous to things like the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals because mm. at the time these crimes happened in the 70s. So they've got that framework. But if you look at their, ig- ig- not ignorance, but overlooking of sexual violence, you can see a lot of the evidence of the kind of patriarchal structures that you were talking about coming into play. You've got a situation where the male, it was all male investigators, it was male translators, they didn't have any training in how to try and get people to open up about that kind of harm. You know, they were going into these communities, they're mostly international investigators as well. So you can see the reluctance that local communities would have to share anything so personal about what had happened to them. So you've got that, but you've also got it was hard to find what they might have been looking for, but they also weren't looking for it. And you can see in interviews with prosecutors and investigators at the start of that court's work, a real a, a prioritisation happening that classes the murder and torture as what requires their attention. And then these other arguably, well, definitely very prevalent sexual and gender-based harms as a lesser crime. And there's other issues that you'll have, I'm sure, encouraged in your own research about how what is easy to prove and what should be prioritised within these structures. So for a long time, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal utterly, you know, failed to acknowledge that rape was part of what happened to women, you know, that there was a policy of forced marriage happening during the Khmer Rouge that impacted on male and female victims that just wasn't part of the narrative. So my research has been about how victim groups and civil society organisations working with victims and then the lawyers that have come to represent the victims in the courts have tried to challenge that patriarchal narrative and have tried to say, well, actually, this crime that you've overlooked has impacted you know, thousands and thousands of lives and is a huge part of their experience and have tried to use their status within the court to try and bring about change. 
Uh, and then for you, yes, and that kind of maps onto something that you've seen in your own work, I think, about, again, lawyers working within the courts to try and challenge that narrative. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> it's a good point here to talk about law and the role of law in this context, which is something that I speak to a lot in, in, in my work. And so I would say that law doesn't have the answer to everything. And, and I say that explicitly and deliberately because I think what, what happens when we talk about the narratives and who is visibilized and who isn't, um, we, we think through our legal lens. And that is a privilege that doesn't necessarily match up to many of the way that victims' lives are expressed. So it's, it's not just that we reduce someone's story to the language of law and to the framework of law, but to understand wider social, cultural ways of understanding history, of understanding identity, of understanding community and culture. And I think the best lawyers that I've seen and interviewed within my work are, are those that recognize that, that recognize both the strengths but also the shortcomings of law. And, by, and, and so within that, they provide examples of, of the, the best activism that I've seen within institutions and how they work because they recognize and are willing to engage in conversations with anthropologists, with social scientists, with um, sort of gender studies, with issues around race. And, and that, that kind of knowledge equips a lawyer or any other personnel working in international tribunals with an understanding of the context and the people who they're working with. So that's kind of a lot of the direction that my work has taken. And I think that's an important conversation for us to have more of, and I think that's what we're doing here today. But it's it's understanding that law doesn't provide all the answers. And also international law certainly doesn't provide all the answers. International law has a role to play. But we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't allow it to monopolize the conversation about sexual and gender based violence. Um, and I think some of the points that you raised is, as you were saying it, I was just thinking, well, we have this problem in the domestic criminal law system. We have this problem around, you know, um, sexual and gender based violence being obscured because police may not take it seriously, victims aren't believed, we have rape myths within our criminal justice. We have a number of reasons why, even domestically, we don't do enough with regards to sexual and gender-based violence. Elevate that up, and our expectations may grow, but the realities also grow with it. The challenges grow with that. And I think that's what a lot of your work is trying to like look at this relationship between domestic and international law, Ethna, that, that you kind of see this mirroring and this conversation that's happening between the two. And I don't think we should forget that. Yeah, I think, um, well, my work anyway, it started in thinking through these, the feminist intervention into international criminal law. And when I look back in terms of the 1990s, whenever a lot of the feminist activism really did begin around the Rwanda tribunal and the Yugoslav tribunal, like I spoke about, you had feminist scholars and activists thinking about the challenges we do face domestically and trying to construct or influence the courts in some way whenever they were thinking about what are the rules, what is the legislation that we're actually going to apply to these crimes. Because as I said, there wasn't really that precedent because you didn't have it in Nuremberg or Tokyo. So you have a lot of documentation where feminist scholars and practitioners come together to try and write out these legal rules. And there was almost an expectation that because 
it's the unique context of international criminal law where you have these situations of conflict or mass violence that there might be a hope that we can move away from some of these stereotypes because it's not that individualised situation. It's a situation of mass violence where there's large-scale coercion and oppression. But then what we have found as we've moved on is that the same type of stereotypes and myths actually have filtered up again. So you have the law in the books where we have the very nice legislation, for example, that comes out of the International Criminal Court, the definitions, the rules of procedure and evidence, the mechanisms for dealing with issues of consent, for example. But then you have individual cases where these issues are being raised again and victims and witnesses aren't being supported. So I think it goes back again to what Yasin, you were saying, and also Rachel, in terms of this idea, we, we can have the law, but it's how do we actually investigate? How do we prosecute? How do we train individuals, not only to apply the law as it is literally in the books, but to these specific contexts that they are then working in? So I think there, you know, you had the 2014 Global Summit to end um, sexual violence and conflict and the protocol and the different um instruments that came out of that in terms of trying to improve the investigation and prosecution and that's something that we potentially should be looking at a little bit more because as you say you can have these nice pieces of legislation but it's human beings who have flaws and have biases and different cultural Mm -hmm. and social understandings and as you say when you go into a situation for example and you're trying to think how does this conduct how does this activity fit the legal definition or the legal rules the victims and witnesses mightn't necessarily be speaking in that language. Mm. So it's trying to break through those barriers and ensure that we are actually capturing it within the legal categories, but also being true to the experience. And one of the interesting things I uh, I think coming out of that is, is the fact that when we look at, um, if we look at an individual um, situation of harm where there are multiple victims with, within international crimes and we we have this tendency to homogenize those victims so we talk about victims as if we all understand who that is and 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 that and, and that is a failing on our part we need to do better in our language and understanding and awareness and perspective of the fact that you have multiple individuals who are dealing with harms inflicted upon them there there may be consistency there may be collective pain there may be collective suffering but that is not to be used to erase individual narratives and stories right so i, I and i think that there must be more of an awareness and a commitment to complicate these conversations, which, um, again, I come from a very critical perspective within international criminal law, because I think the necessity is to unpack some of that dynamic. So when you think about prosecutors, when you think about investigators, and you think about the biases that people have generally, like, as we are as human beings, and then what that means when you go into a post-conflict society or a society that has an ongoing conflict how 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 do you navigate that how do you deal with with individuals in those circumstances how do you connect with communities and accepting that justice does not always mean international justice and in fact we should be in a place where we offer justice as close and as proximate to to victims and communities as possible and international justice is our is our catch all is our is our is our overarching support. Um, certainly, that's the perspective I come from because um, 
the victims and survivors groups who I work with within the African continent all repeatedly say the same story about the distance of justice, the whiteness of justice, the kind of Western Europe. And, and those are those are allegations that I think need to be addressed by us as international practitioners. Do you think then, yes, and this idea of the hybrid institution offers something in a way of addressing a little bit of that? Because I think about, you know, the C. For all its failings, and there's there's many, there's not even enough time to start getting into that, has at least, it has grounded itself, so it, you know, it takes place within Cambodia, uh, half the staff are Cambodian, mm-hmm. the majority of the chambers are Cambodian, and they have taken, they've put huge amount of effort and resources into ensuring that Cambodians come and see justice being, well, justice being performed, and I think it's the most visited international institution in the world. So on that sense, it tries to bring justice closer to the people it's impacting, or, well, trying to impact. But at the same time, it remains distant, right? So, you know, the fact that they can physically go and see it and participate, there's something like 4,000 uh, victims participating in the second trial. It actually, there's there's more work to be done on a, on a different kind of level because it still remains, as you describe it, this other entity and a westernised entity because they still feel that it's not necessarily justice within their communities. It doesn't actually address, you know, the harm that's been done to them. It's something that's good. You wouldn't find anyone that didn't think it should happen, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that they have managed to kind of achieve that more localised form of justice. Yeah, I, th- I think the hybrid model could be a way forward in terms of its use. But again, I'm hesitant because um, instead of tracking international justice and the way that it's been practiced um, that I currently write about in my book, there is a tendency to look for a one-size-fit-all solution to things. So I, I why, while I, you know, accept the points you make about the, the hybrid tribunal with regards to the Khmer Rouge, we, we also had a hybrid tribunal of sorts in Sierra Leone. We had it for the Lebanon tribunal, which isn't located anywhere near. So we have different models of hybrid tribunals. Um, so it certainly is one um, area of research that could be further developed and understood. But again, it somewhat still wants to situate the mechanisms of international justice and international law um, in a very top-down approach. So just because it's there within the country isn't enough. And, 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 and so proximity to justice isn't just about, or certainly with the victims and survivors and the civil society organizations that I've worked with, it's not just about locality. It's 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 more than that. It's about, as you made the point about investigators being all male and predominantly from a certain geographic location. That is problematic. That is victims and survivors notice this. Civil society organisations notice this. So if we're really going to talk about bringing justice home to victims, let's do so in a root and branch manner. Yeah. I think just um, to kind of build on from that conversation, because I think it links into my research in terms of trying to think how the international can link to the domestic or vice versa um, mm-hmm. and to try to move away, I suppose, from the completely top down 
But I look a little bit at um, complementarity of the International Criminal Court. So the idea that it is supposed to be a court of last resort and generally it is supposed to be domestic jurisdictions who deal with the atrocities within their own courts yep. domestically. Um, and what you then have and what I've witnessed is civil society organisations on a global level coming together to try and make the developments at the international accessible domestically, but not in that kind of wholesale transfer where the International Criminal Court or the International Criminal Jurisprudence is correct and it's the only way to go, but just bringing these developments home in an accessible manner so that individuals in the domestic context can then look at them and can reframe or reform their domestic frameworks to be able then to explore and prosecute these different crimes and atrocities that um, occur. So it's really trying to ensure that the justice is owned by the home country, but also mm -hmm. trying to develop a little bit more in terms of the International Criminal Court, for example, is a body that was negotiated. There was compromises. There's different things. Not everything is correct. Not everything is right. There's developments. And civil society is then enabling domestic jurisdictions to take that and to dissect it a little bit and then to deal with the cultural and social circumstances in their home country rather than just taking it as a wholesale resolution. So I think that's also a way as well as the hybrid type mm. institutions, so to think about reforming these domestic yeah. institutions so that they can be done and it's not this abstract entity of westernised international criminal justice trying to impose itself. Absolutely. You can see there that, you know, when you're dealing with extremely complex uh, incidences of violence that any kind of this is the one answer for you is going to be inappropriate and what we've seen, some of the threads that are coming out there are all the different ways that you can think more broadly about how you respond to collective instances of justice in a way that doesn't, you know, homogenize victims or leave them excluded, but also maybe provides different layers that actually, you know, maybe complement each other instead of just offering one thing that people just have to deal with. And um, because we're running short of time, I just wanted to ask a final question, maybe about, you know, our theme today and our, our theme this afternoon is going to be this idea of 16 days of activism. What is activism? What does that mean to you in response to you know, in the context of your own research, this idea of 16 days of activism? I think um, for me, activism has to start at home and in the sense of, so I'm from the Gambia and um, I, I, I was brought up in the Middle East and what I found sort of in essence of who I am as an individual is that activism comes from people that I've seen, people who I connect with and examples of how you can make changes in very difficult circumstances um, at, a, at a very small but microscopic and yet significant level. And then activism can then be magnified, as you say, go up the international scale. So whether it's working with civil society actors, whether it's working with local women's groups here in Belfast around ethnic minority women's issues, whether it's about speaking to people in The Hague at the ICC, my activism has multiple location, but it begins in conversations I have with my mother about changes to the way women's um, status and role is, is ever being challenged and amalgamated in Gambia. And that is something that is lived. And that is, that is, it isn't a, it isn't a kind of cloak that I put on. It's, it's who I am. And it's part of the dynamic of, of the people, the people I surround myself with. And then my work is just a reflection of that. Yeah, I think um, for me, activism, again, it's not something that you can just put on and link into Yasin's. It's 
it's more this idea of a communal sense of activism in that what you're trying to do is to engage individuals and bring them together and to put forward certain ideas and challenge people. So it might not necessarily be that your idea that you want people to um, aspire to or you want people to agree with, it's not that you initially want them to get it, you just want them to understand your perspective. So it can be quite simple and Mm -hmm. it's going to be a long-term thing rather than short-term. And again, thinking back just to to my work, it's that idea of accessibility. So if you're going to be thinking about activism, you have to think about who you're going to try and reach um, in terms of doing that. So it really is a a long-term thing and it can be as simple as just changing someone's opinion. Brilliant. Thank you so much, both. Thank you. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Rachel Colleen, and our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Yasin Bringer and Ethna Dowds for today's episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at QUB LawPod. You can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Colleen and this was LawPod.